0: Hey, what's up everyone? It's Pastor Joel here. Today we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Daniel. And today we're going to be talking about Daniel chapter 6. Now if you know anything about the book of Daniel, if you only know one thing about uh, uh, the book of Daniel, this is probably the thing you know. This is the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Um, And so we're going to walk through that passage today. But before we do, I want to just um, talk a little bit about where we've come from and kind of put this into context uh, with the rest of the, st- of the story of the book of Daniel, which talks about living well in exile, living well in, in a place that is not our own, um, living inside of another kingdom, and honoring and worshiping God in that kingdom, while also working for the good of the kingdom that we're in, so that we can bless it. In chapters 1 and 2, we talked about um, our work Uh, Our vocation, living in the public square and doing so in a way that honors Jesus and the place that we work or the public square that we're in. In chapter 3, we talked about how we respond to pressure or conflict with culture. In chapter 4, we talked about uh, living well with a different king, even though we are inside of another kingdom or or we're facing pressure to honor another king. And the back half of chapter 4, we talked about living humbly, living with God, knowing that God is the true Lord of the whole world, and and posturing ourselves well in the light of that. In chapter 5, this is last week, we talked about how our reliance on God's faithful word shapes how we live in exile, and today we're going to be talking about how we deal with um, hardship and suffering. Now, there is some crossover with chapter 3, there's actually a lot of structural similarities to this uh... story um, as with chapter three some of the similarities is like a decree gets issued and, and there's a call for worship of, of some other god um, and there's this conflict in worship from the 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 protagonist in the story here it's daniel there it was shadrach meshach and abednego there's some conflict in worship that leads to a penalty and the confessor or daniel is saved by god And at the end of the chapter, there is worship of God by the king. Um, In this case, instead of King Nebuchadnezzar, it's King Darius. And in both uh, of chapter 3 and chapter 6, there are jealous colleagues who kind of kick the whole thing off. Now, there's a couple of differences, too, and, and some of these will we'll get into a little bit more some of them are not so important um, the setting here is persian not babylonian so we're not living in babylon anymore necessarily we're living in the persian empire or the time of the persian empire um the king darius is manipulated instead of just coming up with the idea on his own and i think most importantly um daniel's area of allegiance the the, the thing that he's being called to compromise is um, in his private life, not just in a public showing of, of bowing down to some golden statue. But here, it is about the posture of his heart and the allegiance of, of his worship and his confession of who he follows. Alright, so let's get into the passage. Let's just start talking about it. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Daniel 6, and we'll start right at in the very beginning in verse 1. Now, like I said, the setting for this uh, story is in Persia. So there's been a change in administration. If you remember back to last week in chapter 5, you had Belshazzar. He's the last king or the last ruler of Babylon. And um, Persia or, or Media or the combination of the two come in. They take over ownership of the city. They kill um, Belshazzar and take over the whole kingdom. And, and now there's a new king in town. Um, Daniel is still in his high role, even though it's in a new empire. And this, is, this aligns really well with what we know about uh, ancient Persia and how they would come in and take over other kingdoms. Because they're, they're in the business of, of conquering kingdoms, right? They're, they're franchisers. They, they know how to come in, take over a kingdom, and turn it into a, a Persian uh, city and, and region. They wouldn't change that much, all right? If you're thinking about it really pragmatically, it's a lot easier to, instead of killing all of the leaders of a certain area and trying to find new leaders of your own and putting them over and assuming they could be competent and rule over um, the, 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 the region that they're, that they're ruling over and that they'd actually do it well, it's a lot easier to just get uh, the people who are already there and ruling to now just give their allegiance over to Persia instead of Babylon. It's just a lot simpler to do it. And so um, what they would do is they would they would try to take all these people and they would who were who were already in leadership of a certain area and try to set them over turn them into satraps or or some other role within the Persian government. And so if Persia is a paper company, then satraps would be the regional branch managers of Persia. All right? Satrap just means protector of the realm. And so most officials in the administration just kept their role already protecting the realm, acting as governors or or mayors or w- however we would think about it. It's just now they're implementing Persian policies into their area and they're giving their allerg- allegiance to Persia. This is a really common thing and Daniel is a part of this. Um, they keep him in his high role or, or maybe they, they, they put him back into his high role. We, we saw in chapter 5 that Daniel had kind of um, fallen out of favor for some reason um, after Nebuchadnezzar had died and somewhere in between there and where we get to where Belshazzar is at, but he's, he's put in this high role and he's doing really well for himself. Now, we talked a little bit about this last week, so if you want to really dig into it more, I would really recommend you go back to that sermon if you haven't heard it, Daniel chapter 5, but just want to point out the fact that Darius his presence in this story is a little bit vexing because when we look outside the Bible, we look at other contemporary, contemporaneous history of the, of the time, we don't, we don't see any Darius that is ruling. We know Cyrus is the king of Persia. There is, no, there is a great king of, of Persia named Darius, but he does not live in this period. He lives down the road sometime. So some scholars think that Cyrus ruled Babylon with the name Darius, which is a very common Persian name. Uh, Some think one of these regional leaders of the kingdom that we talked about is I just identified as Darius. Um, A couple of guys that, if that's the case, that it could be. One of them um, that we know, we think is supposed... From outside history was the one leading babylon is a guy named Gubaru. yes that is a real name (laughs) Gubaru, or ugbaru is the the name of the other guy it could be Uh, this is a general who came in and took over babylon in the night in the story that we told last time now remember with all of this until relatively recently again this is going back to last week's last week's sermon for a long time we didn't know of any person who Ever what was ruling over Babylon named Belshazzar, and then we discovered um, uh, some more uh, about the the time and, and area that actually aligned really well with it, and so um, some new evidence could for sure come to light, right? And, and we just don't have it right now. All right, that's possible, but for us, what I want us to do is just to to remember that the integrity of the Bible rests on its purpose, which is Jesus. It doesn't rest on its ability to get every detail aligned perfectly with outside history sources. It's not a history textbook. That's not what it's trying to be. It's trying to tell us a story about Jesus and and, and leading up to Jesus, telling the story of God's people as as they, they lead to its climax in Jesus. All right, and so what we're going to do is we're going to take the passage on its own and we're going to read it as its own consistent story because only then can we interpret it well. And when we're able to interpret it, we're able to have uh, the purpose of the passage that's found in Jesus revealed to us. All right, so we're going to do that. We're going to move forward doing that, even understanding that there is some ambiguity with the text and we're just not going to be scared off by that. Just like it, it can be common to do, all right? Um, All right, let's keep moving in the passage. Daniel uh, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these um, other administrators, these other satraps, they they look at Daniel, they see his excellence. And remember we talked a lot about Christian excellence in in the public sphere, in our places of work or whatever our vocation is. They see his excellence and they can also see that that excellence is standing in their way. And these are guys who are all about the ambition game. They want to get ahead. And if that means um, dumping someone that was higher up than them especially someone who was a part of that pathetic exilic jewish community right then that's acceptable losses that's that's totally okay and so what they do is they look at him and they say hmm it seems as if the God that this Daniel worships seems to be the one that has blessed him with, with all of this favor. He's, his worship of his God has been the thing that has actually given him so much excellence and success. And again, we talked about how that played out in those first few sermons of the series. So if you want to hear that, go back and listen to them. But what, what we think we need to do, because that seems to just keep working for him, is instead of making it an asset, we need to turn it into some sort of vice. So here's what they do. So this is uh, verses 6 and 7. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said... May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, Your Majesty, this is verse eight. Issue the decree and put it in writing so that cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. That's verse the first part of verse nine. Okay, it's a strange decree. Let's just like pause and reflect on that, for, or just point it out at least. Like, why would they say Darius, you should only be a god for 30 days? Right? That just seems kind of weird. Is it so Darius can learn? like a lesson, like in Bruce Almighty or something, that it's harder being God than he thought? No, it just seems kind of weird, right? Um, Maybe what's going on, this is from John Walton, he's a commentator, an Old Testament scholar, he just suggests that it's not um, deifying the king, but just making him the only authorized representative to the deity or the deities for a state of time, whatever. Regardless, the point is that Darius goes along with it. And the reason he goes along with it where we're not given uh, any sort of reason why but when we think about it and we just think about leaders or people in these types of positions today, like we know a lot of times they're really insecure people all right so they need to go on Twitter and boast about their intelligence sometimes I'm just trying to let us know how smart they are. Um, if you've been following the NFL at all recently, you saw the Antonio Brown saga where, this guy for a few months just was going on like seemed very I don't know if he was or not, but seemed very publicly to be having just some sort of mental breakdown on Twitter and on ESPN and it just shows goes to show how easily how easy it is for people in positions of high authority or, or very public spaces to get a enamored with themselves and to just have the, the power or spotlight that they have on them to um, have this effect on them that causes them to see the world in crazy ways. We don't understand, but it's a pattern. We, we see it often. It's just the effect of power or celebrity, and Darius could for sure have succumbed to that too. All right, So, w- whatever. Whatever's going on, King Darius says, all right, let's do this. All right, let's get back into the text, um, starting in, in or jumping in the middle of verse 9. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. So Daniel is not trying to publicly flaunt his religion, but he's not going to go... And, and do his normal routine of, of worshiping God in total secret either. He just says, I'm going to keep doing what I've normally been doing, even in the face of the decree. And the reason why is that Daniel respects a king who is higher than Darius, a God who is higher than the king who is now apparently God. All right, verse 11. Then these men, this is the administrators and satraps and all these guys who are out to get Daniel, they went as a group and they found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Verses 13 to 15 here. Then uh, they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah. Oh, this Daniel, remember him? He pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. right? As if the only way that Daniel, who we know Darius is a big fan of, could pay attention to him is to worship him like a god right? (laughs) When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, remember your majesty that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. Verse 16 through 18. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was placed or brought and and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating or without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. All right, let's talk about Daniel in this den for a sec. Uh, if you want to have some fun right now, you can uh, pull out your phone or or wait till this is wait till the sermon's done and you can do this, go home and, and pull out your laptop or something. But just Google pictures of Daniel in the lion's den from like for like kids to use for Sunday school. And it just shows this happy guy sitting in a bunch of happy lines, they're maybe cuddling together or something like that. Alright, this is not what's going on. <laughs> okay, I, I'm sure that, that that's obviously like you know that. But i just want to really highlight that this is really scary stuff these lions are probably never left this pit and probably were not fed very often so they're kept very hungry and desperate and they are waiting for anything to get tossed down to them and they don't care what it is they're going to rip at the shreds and eat it all right? the chance of survival in this pit is next to nothing and the pit itself, that's the, the word that's actually used, it just means like an underground cistern for water or jail. So basically it's just a hole in the ground with an entrance at the top. We have no reason to think there's a side door. And you drop someone in there and then the king just presses his signet ring on some kind of clay or cloth, a ring that only the king would have had, to make sure that nobody took Daniel out. Okay, It's like his, his thumbprint, um, getting scanned or something like that. Only the king had it. All right. Now, Darius does all this, and we're told in verse 18 that he is so upset that he couldn't take any entertainment. He could not just go home and watch Netflix and chill out. That's just not an option for him here. All right. All right. So so Darius spends the night in anguish, wondering what's happening to Daniel inside of the lion's den, and um, he goes out the next morning to see what's happened. Verse 19. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lion's den? And as he he waits, Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in His sight, this is God. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, Your Majesty. So Daniel yells back up to Darius, the God sent His angel. Now this plays a similar role to the, the the mysterious figure in Daniel three, the one who hangs out in the lines or in the sorry the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the angel of the Lord, which is seems what. Uh, what, what Daniel is referring to here is this mysterious character who shows up in all sorts of different places in the Old Testament. It's not that often. Um, it's from time to time. The language around this character is super fuzzy so that we just don't really know. Is this supposed to be some special angel that represents God and, and, and only him? um somehow strangely representing god's presence is it god himself is it some special manifestation of yahweh uh, coming into some certain place we just don't quite know the 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 language is elusive and we just aren't entirely sure what's going on Um, people throughout christian history have guessed that this is god himself though showing up and um, they're, they're not the only ones. Um, we know that the Jewish interpreters of something called the Septuagint, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And so, um, everybody in the New Testament era in the first century would have known Greek probably better than Hebrew Aramaic. And, um, and this is what they would have been reading more often than the Hebrew Bible, probably, is the Greek Septuagint. In fact, when you read your New Testament, you see quotations from the Old Testament by the writers. They're, not, they're quoting this Greek Septuagint. They're, they're quoting the Greek version of it because they're writing in Greek and they're being, you know, this is being read in Greek to different people. Alright, so the Jewish interpreters of this Septuagint, if you ever are reading about the Septuagint, sometimes it just gets referred to as the LXX, Um, so so maybe you've seen that before in writing. What they do when they translate this passage into Greek is they translate it that it is God himself who is in there with Daniel. So we know these Jewish interpreters at least thought that the angel of the Lord meant it was God himself down there. Alright? All right, so put a pin in that or, or, or stick that piece of gum under your chair. All right, because we'll come back to it a little bit later on. Um, all right, let's keep going in the passage here. We're about to kind of finish it up. Um, and we'll, we'll just read to the end here, starting in verse 23, reading to uh, verse 28. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. A very happy ending for them. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. This is a very different decree than what he just had offered up, right? For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. There we go. Closing out our passage. All right. So now as we move from interpretation or or digging into the passage into application, like I said at the beginning, what I want to do is I want to talk about how we suffer or how we deal with pain or hardship in exile, right? Remember, we want to remain distinct in our worship of Jesus. It means we look different. But we will all end up in lions dens and that's true of, any, of everybody. doesn't matter if you're in um, if you're a Christian or not, you will end up in some sort of lions den. You'll end up in some feeling like you're stuck in a pit with lions surrounding you, licking their lips at you, looking like you would make a very tasty meal for them, ready to devour you. All right Many of us have, I mean, come on, every one of us have felt like that at some point in our lives. Maybe as you're listening to this, you feel like you're in that time right now yourself. Now, in, in our Western society, we tend to have a very distinct view of pain and hardship. And it comes off of how we, how we view everything, right? How we feel, right, what our feelings about something are, determines whether or not it's good or bad. And we extend that out to our morality. If a thing brings pain, it is, is evil or bad or to be avoided. Okay? And so because pain is unpleasant, it doesn't feel good, then we'd, we really have no need for it. We have no use for it. All it is is evidence that something is badly wrong and we just need to get out of it. All right? Especially in the case that of, of not being guilty or, or, or undue or undeserved um, pain, pain or hardship, like what Daniel's going through. It's unjust, it's unfair, it's irredeemable. So I want us to talk about what it looks like to to to, uh, to walk through pain and suffering and hardship, uh, but in viewing it in a way that we see how Daniel does here, or, how, or what we learn from the text as as a way we should view it. So our first point of application here on how to suffer well, all right? That's kind of the focus. How do we suffer well? How do we suffer in a Christian, God-honoring, way um, Exile way is to and we're t- taking this just from the passage. All right, this isn't rocket science. We are going to pray, just like Daniel does. As soon as that decree comes out, Daniel still goes up to his room. He faces Jerusalem and he gets down and he prays. And you're probably sitting there and you're like, "Thank you, wow! I'm so glad that you told me this application. You should pray when things are tough. Uh, you know, that's that's pretty pretty much common sense. All right." But I want to talk about what we're praying about. I think that's important, okay? Because typically, our prayer is, "Please, please, 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 do not let me go into that lion's den." And that's what we would have expected Daniel's prayer to be um, when we find him praying um, in the passage. "Please keep me out of that lion's den," or if you do find yourself inside of a den, the prayer is, "Please, please, 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 God, show me a way out of this den." Right? If I can't avoid the den. Um, show me how to get out, and if you can't, I will feel very upset. Obviously, because remember, this is a this means that something is going wrong. This means there's a problem here, God. Now, before I say what I'm about to say, I want to start off with this caveat. All right, I am not gonna. I, I'm not even. Though I want to challenge the assumption of, of of praying to to avoid the lion's den, or, or challenge the assumption of of praying, I just got to get out of this lion's den. I'm not trying to tell you, don't pray for deliverance. right? Don't believe God um, can't deliver you and that he doesn't desire to rescue us or deliver us from the lion's den. That's what happens to Daniel in the story, obviously, right? God is a God of deliverance. But when we pray, this should not be our only prayer, all right? When we look at Daniel's prayer, it says that um, he was praying just a sim- his normal, simple prayer of thanks to God. He's not a a prayer that is limited by its circumstances, all right? And we need to be people who pray in a similar fashion. Our prayer life has the ability, think about this, our prayer life, what we pray about, how we posture our hearts towards God, the practices that we get into every single day, praying to God. This, when we do this in an intentional way, it has the ability to reshape our view of God and any circumstances that we find ourselves in. Now, if you're not praying, you're not, you're not being intentional in any way. And you will for sure be shaped according to your circumstances. So, it's better to pray something than nothing at all. All right. But when we pray a prayer of worship or thanks, our prayer, our view of the den changes in spite of being in there. And when we pray you know, to God, I will still praise you, God. I will still worship you. I still give you thanks, God. I still acknowledge who you are then the lion's den does not have any power over us. That's what we're showing. That's what we're proving. All right? If all we do is pray, please get me out of this, that can maybe show us that our that the lion's den does seem to have quite a bit of power over us. But we have to believe that God is the God of the lion's den and not just the God of the place outside of it. Now, hopefully that knowledge changes how we pray. Hopefully, we, we can acknowledge that we are praying uh, to a God that is larger than our circumstances. But the the problem is, is that when we don't view God that way, what we're saying about God, remember I said how we pray sh- shows how we view God, how we view our circumstances. When we only call on God, when we need something from Him, then it's showing that we view Him as some sort of God of utility. All right, We view Him just like so, you know, sometimes when you get to meet an adult, you get to college or you're out of college or something like that, you feel self-sufficient and the only time that you, you talk to your parents is when you need something from them, right? And so uh, so we have this relationship with our parents. So they're just another means to an end, helping me out when I need money to help cover rent or, or whatever it is. I'm hoping to get a care package from home. right? I'm, I'm waiting for that Christmas uh, gift from my parents. I hope it's pretty dang good, Right? Um, when we have that view of our parents, we view them as just as ha- just having some utility for us, and often we have a view of God that views Him the same way. I mean, how many people have faiths that are like that, that only go to God in certain um, specific circumstances? All right, and when we view, when we end up in the lion's den, what what we do oftentimes is we end up uh, thinking that God has made a mistake or He's being unjust. If we view Him as a God of utility, we think that there's a problem. You know, it's like, hey, God, I didn't know if you've noticed this, but I've been pretty good lately, and I've actually been doing quite a bit to avoid going into any sort of den. So there must be some mistake here, and I would really appreciate it if you'd fix it because. I am definitely not getting what I deserve. And when we're in that state, we look around and we're just trying to get out of the lion's den. We're looking for sticks lying around to try to fight the lines ourselves, maybe. Right? Good luck with that, by the way. Um, or we want to try to like rock climb our, our way out of there. And so prayer just becomes one of these sticks or one of these handholds that we're using to try and pull ourselves out of the lion's den. And this shows that we have a circumstance-driven view of God and a circumstance-driven view of the lion's den. And what we need to do is we need to reorient ourselves to view the den from another angle. Now, I'm not saying we view it as good, but we need to be able to view the lion's den as a place where good can happen. And this is our second point of application. Don't despise the lion's den because this is where you will meet God. Good can come from being in the lion's den. Now, there are all sorts of practical reasons why um, suffering and, and hardship or hard things can lead to to good results. This is just a natural, the way that the world works, and we have we observe this, right? Think about weightlifting. When you go to lift weights, what you are doing is you are literally breaking your muscles down. You're tearing your muscles down so that they can be built back up, and that feels good, right? It feels good. It feels Uh, good to know that when you're breaking your muscles down and there's some pain associated with that, the next morning when you get up, I don't know if you've ever had this, I know I do sometimes, and you you did squats the day before and you like struggle to even sit down, you gotta use your hands to help lower yourself down because your legs hurt so bad, right? But I know I get a strange pleasure from that where I like, I know that this hurts but because of a good thing right so I actually really like that pain I don't know if that's true maybe you guys hate it or something but that's a good sort of pain we're tearing something down to build it back up again Um, I mean expand it out chemotherapy right we are poisoning the body to kill cells we know that chemo is really hard on people's bodies but it's something that will kill cancer and bring life out of it alright so so chemotherapy another example of it parental discipline is another one we're we are stopping our kids from having something. Um, they, they kick and scream. They're not fans of it, right? But we know that this is a good thing for them and good will come out of this and bad will come out of it if we don't stop them from, you know, eating all the sugar in the world that they want or something, all right? And just this general mindset. I see this all over the place. I follow a lot of athletes on, on Instagram. And I get, you see posts like this all the time, right? Adversity makes us step our game up. It makes us better versions of ourselves. It makes us climb over and be stronger and grow. We have this mindset, all right? But it rarely occurs to us that good might come from being in alliance. And this is why it's so crazy to me that we have these views, but we still hate pain and suffering so much. Right? And we have this view that God could only be working if he were busting us out of this place or or keeping me out of it in the first place. Now here's the thing, we rarely let enter our mind. God might want us in the line then because, and not just because he not because he likes to see us in pain and suffering, but because this is where we will often find him. Remember in the in the In the passage, Daniel's praying towards the temple. This means he's praying towards the place where God's presence is at, right? Daniel desires God's presence. Yet, in all of the book, Daniel never meets God in all of these successes that he has, all of the heights that he reaches in the early chapters of the book, right? Daniel is this figure who's well-known. He's just, you know, moving up the ladder. He's impressing kings left and right. He, He just can't be stopped and all, all of the excellence that he has in his job and we would expect right that that Daniel would have experienced God's presence in all of that but he doesn't the one place where Daniel meets God where he is in God's presence specifically is in the lion's den especially if we read that angel of the Lord as in some way being God right Now we might assume that God is only going to meet us in our successes Or our successes show God's presence or blessing on us. I'm not saying that's not true. We should attribute our success or the good things that happen to us to God and his blessing on us. right? Obviously, that's true. Daniel has prospered from it. I think he's very aware of that. But here's the thing that we don't think about when we think about that. Is that God's not necessarily out there to just make us really comfortable. God cares that we know him and that we are made into Christ's image by knowing him. To become, we become a certain type of person through coming into contact with God. And sometimes we need to meet God in the line stand because we are not meeting God outside of it right? Because we are too comfortable. We are too much on autopilot. We say, thank you God very much, but I don't want to, you know, getting to know you better would be probably a little bit uncomfortable, or I'm going to do just enough to get by. I'm not actually really growing, but I'm okay with that because comfort is the thing that I care about. And when we end up in the lion's den, that is a place where God shows up. Sometimes he'll show up in, in in healing and comforting ways, He'll, he'll, he'll be tender he'll come alongside us hell'll he will he will whisper in our ears that, that we are, are safe that he has got us but other times he's going to show up in a storm right and I can tell you from my own life experience and the, and the experiences of many other people pain and hardship or in the really turbulent chaotic times of life were some of the most important because that is a place where we met God and grew more than we ever had before. We saw Jesus strongly working in our lives. We experienced his love. We grew in those seasons in ways we never did when we were just comfortable, you know, when we were just kind of lazy going through the motions. Being in that lion's den is what mattered. One of my uh, favorite passages in all of scripture, I think, I'm just learning this more and more, um, the, the, the further I get up there in age, and the more experience I get with things, is is found in the book of Job. And and, and Job, if you if you don't know it, God, uh, you know, allows this 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 terrible stuff to happen to Job at the beginning of the book. But we know the reason why is actually has to do with Job's righteousness or how good he is. And if you want to understand it, I would I would just suggest you go read the book yourself, right? And so Job goes through this long. Uh, the book is long, where he, he is just talking about what he's going through. He doesn't know what's been going on, and he's not met God, all right? Until the very end of the book, God shows up. Now, we would expect God to show up and tell Job, hey, whoa, dude, dude, oh, um, so don't get so upset, because wouldn't you know it, this is actually because you're so awesome that all this bad stuff has been happening to you, all right? So, quick you know, keep being awesome, dude, and don't be so don't be so frustrated with me. And also, I'll get on it right away, trying to change the situation. All right, that's not what happens. God shows up in a storm to him, and kind of just tells Job, "Listen, like you do not understand everything the way that you think." And after this encounter with God, after this encounter um, with the storm that God shows up in, Job has these words I think are so profound. He says listen, before before all of this I had heard about you God. all right I knew who you were. but now, after this time of suffering, I have seen you. I have seen you God. It is a different depth of knowing and it w- it only came because of job's time in the lion's den. All right, and we need to remember that so we don't despise the line stand. Now, for all of those for, all, for, the, for those of you who might be listening, and you are just all about your comfort, right? all that matters to you, more than knowing God, more than growing, is avoiding the line stand at all costs, staying comfortable, you know, making sure those bank accounts are, are nice and fat, uh, that you, you can get by perfectly, that you don't need to be sufficient on anybody else, that you have a nice house, you know, whatever it is, whatever your... Whatever comfort comes from for you, if that's your mindset, I want to challenge you on that mindset. All right. As your pastor, I am more worried about that mindset than I am about the person who is stuck in the den and is crying out to God and and is really um, really worried about what's going on, is saying things about God that you we you know we're not totally sure. Like, should we say this to God? I, I am less worried about that person than I am about the one who is going to try and protect his or her comfort at all costs. Alright. Now, the the reason I think that we avoid the lines then so much is that we assume we know what's going on in there. Alright. We assume that we know what the problem is. This is kind of what Job does in, in the book of Job, is he keeps throwing out all these things that he thinks are going on um, and he just doesn't know what's going on. That's what what God shows up at the end and tells him, dude, you just do not know all that you think you do. And our third point of application is we cannot assume we know what is going on inside that lion's den. It's natural for the human brain to assign meaning and patterns to things that happen. right? We search endlessly and we're, we're trying to figure out how to reverse the pain and how we can triumph over it. Now I've been comparing us to Daniel in this book. Daniel is, is the one who's sitting in the lion's den. Okay, but remember the anguish that Darius is in it, that night. Remember how he can't sleep. He cannot take any sort of entertainment on that night. The reason why is because he's in a hardship or suffering of his own. And it's the hardship or suffering that comes with being outside of the lion's den. Having his, his view obscured from what's going on in there. Believing the worst is probably taking place. That is a type of hardship in and of itself. And so Darius, being the human that he is, is trying to assign meaning and patterns to what is happening in there by asking questions, all right? Questions like, will Daniel's God deliver him? Will, will his faith be vindicated? Is his God great enough to defeat the lions? I mean, his God couldn't stop him from getting in there in the first place, right? And so he starts to maybe ask questions like, boy, am I, am I being punished for some reason? Um, did, did, did my, uh, getting tricked by my advisors and like, did, is God, is daniel God mad at me? And now I'm being punished for that by letting Daniel get thrown into the lions' den, right? He's trying to assign meaning to what's going on, um, by finding patterns and asking himself questions. And we do this too, right? We try to make sense of what's going on to us when we're in, in pain and hardship. And we ask questions like, is God doing this thing to punish me? Have I been going about something the wrong way? And now that I'm experiencing some hardship, is this supposed to show me I need to quit this thing? Right? And an and increasingly common um, pattern that we assign to things is, is asking the question of, is there actually no pattern to this? Is it all just random atoms crashing into one another and there's no God at all and all this is worthless? It's just, a, just an accident that I'm even here in the first place right? As long as the den is sealed, God's purposes and his work are hidden. And we don't like that. That leads to anxiety, fear, stress, and doubt. But that doesn't mean that there is no hope for us even when our view is obscured. You, you got to get used to having your, your vision blocked and not knowing what's going on. We just need to get used to that because that's going to happen for us on a regular basis. Your view is always going to be obscured. Darius is not the only person in Scripture to fret over what God is doing as some rock is covering a hole in the ground and is obscuring his view. There were men and women who had loved and followed Jesus, and they're devastated as Jesus' body is delivered into that tomb. And for three whole days, it's more than the one night that Darius spends in anguish, for three whole days, which I guarantee you, felt like three years, they have no clue what's going on in there. They had followed Jesus, thinking that this would be the person who God was acting in the world through. And this wasn't a narrow hope. Right? It wasn't just hoping to avoid hell someday or something like that. They were waiting for a kingdom where where death itself would lose its sting on earth as it was in heaven. And the systems of death and decay and pain in the world would be overcome. And they believed that that would change the world forever, not just something that would happen to them when they died. And they thought now that the, what was represented by Jesus lying in that tomb was all of that was gone, because okay, they thought they knew what was going on in that tomb. And we can't blame them, right? For, 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 you know, lots of many, many people had gone into tombs before Jesus did, and none of them had come back out again. But then, bursting forth on the Easter morning, the last thing they expected to happen did and just because they didn't know what was happening in there didn't mean that god wasn't doing something and us being in that lion's den is the same thing we do not know what is going on in there oftentimes we do not know what god is up to in our pain and suffering and i'm here to tell you that that is okay because when we look at daniel in the lion's den and even more so when we look at jesus in the tomb it gives us hope that what is going to come out of there was even better than when, when what went in, than what his disciples thought was going in there, what came back out, a risen Messiah who, who defeats death, is even better than one who just hasn't been killed yet. And whatever um, is going on inside of the lion's den of your life, you can believe that w- you have a hope that, that God will work something even better in the midst of what's going on than what happened when you went in. All right. This is what I'm talking about when I say we had, you know, Job had heard of God before, but he saw Him now. Don't be limited by your circumstances, whether they are good or bad. And if going into the ground is good enough for Jesus, we can handle going into the lion's den through His strength as well. <clears throat> so to wrap up here, um, we always take communion at the end of service. We celebrate Jesus going into the tomb on our behalf through remembrance. Um, so, take and eat. Come up and take communion. This is Jesus' um, body broken for us. Take and drink. This is his blood shed for us. We also respond in worship. Worship lifts us out of our mundane circumstances, right? It, it causes us to, to transcend the circumstance that we're in. And if you don't think you need worship, I'm just going to say you probably need it more than anybody else, alright? We, we, we respond in prayer after each sermon. We, we, have, um, we pray thanks to God and worship Him. And then one last thing um, is giving, right? We, we, we talk about giving as another response to, to Jesus. If you want to stay comfortable and money is a way that you do it, there is no better way to break yourself of it than through giving um, to the church or some other way, right? Break yourself of that comfort. Don't be afraid to give your money to the Lord. All right, let's pray to close. Father, we thank you that you have allowed us to um, experience your son coming out of the tomb better than before so that we can have hope as we also enter into lion's dens. God, help us to know that you are the God of the lion's den and not, not just the Lord outside of it. Lord, I pray that that hope would animate us and give us extreme hope and joy In your son Jesus. I pray all this in his name. Amen.